Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. We're back, baby. We're here. We're Adam Spinella is in the building. Coach Spins, one of the best con- content creators on YouTube. My dear friend, the new co-host of the Game Theory Podcast. What's going on, buddy? How are things going? Sam, it's great to be here. Doing great. Um, our gym floor is getting redone at the school that I coach at. So Monday morning, I'm going to feel like Christmas morning, getting in there with a brand new shiny floor. But uh, just enjoying the, the final days of summer here. And I know everything, it's uh, about to pick up a little bit more once we get back in school and, and kind of how the world seems to pick up uh, sports-wise or basketball-wise once September and October kind of get here. So enjoying the last few moments of summer. But most importantly, how are you feeling? Yeah. So went on vacation, obviously. Vacation was amazing. Bali was terrific. Would recommend to everyone, as I think people saw in the photos on my Twitter account. Um, Got home. And for the 72 hours after I got home, first and foremost, it was just an absolutely, it was like a 13 hour travel day for me on the Friday that I got home because we were on an island off of Bali and we had to like catch a catch a car to the port that doesn't really have a dock and then we had to like get on the boat and then we had to take like a 40 minute boat ride then we had to deboard the boat and then wait for our luggage on the beach and then had to get in a car the car got lost on the way to the bali airport and then uh we were in the car for like an hour and 15 minutes or whatever get to the Bali airport, the airport, the line takes us like 50 minutes to get our tickets. Um, We like catch our plane comfortably, but like within 20 minutes, I would say like we got to the gate within 10 minutes, realistically. Um, Plane is like a six hour flight. We get back get through customs, everything like that. I get home on Friday. Laura's parents come over. We have pizza. My body starts to shut down. And I was just like, okay, yeah, it's fine. My body probably is just tired, right? 12-hour work day or 12-hour flight day, everything like that. The next day, I basically wake up and can't get out of bed. And it feels like exactly like I have COVID. It feels... Um, like I have a terrible headache. I have body aches. My body's like super weak, can't move. I was planning on recording a podcast the next day. So like the whole time I'm like talking to you, I'm just like, yeah, like, I I don't know. Like, I think it's going to pass. Last time I had COVID, it passed in like 36 hours. Um, yeah, it'll be fine. Like we, we should be good for Sunday. Sunday comes. I'm even worse. Like, I think I was even worse that day text you. And I'm just like, yeah, dude, there's no way that I can do this. Um, That's why there was no podcast Sunday. The plan for Adam and I, for the most part, um, once Adam gets in season, things could get a little bit more hairy, but for the most part, we're going to record Sunday night and have the podcast up Monday morning. That's right, Adam. Yep. Yep. So, that should be the expectation for you guys as listeners. But having said that, <laughs> this was not going to happen for us this week. Basically 72 hours in bed later, I am okay and functioning. And 
able to record again, which is nice. Uh, I, I've missed recording. I've missed listening to you guys ask questions. I've missed interacting with you guys as listeners. Uh, and I'm super excited to be here. I'm super excited to be here with Adam. We introduced him on the last podcast officially. I'm excited to do the first full episode with Adam's co-host today. And I'll tell you, like, Adam did a lot of the prepping for this one uh, and, and a lot of the plan work. And I think we've got like a pretty good, fun episode set up. So what we're going to talk about today is kind of team building in college basketball right now. And we want to start with like just this very basic question of do recruiting rankings matter? Um, and then we're going to move toward how you build a roster, transfers, recruiting, how does NIL fit in, everything like that. Then we're going to do a mailbag, which will be really fun because I know that there are just some fucking bonkers questions there that I've seen already. Um, and then we're going to do prospects of the week. So Adam, yeah. the thing that kind of drove me to have this idea of, uh, hey, let's maybe do this thing where we talk about do recruiting rankings matter was while I was on vacation. I saw a tweet from Khalil Shakir, who is an assistant coach at Emory and Henry, which is in Virginia, which D3 is where in Virginia, baby. Shout out D3 basketball. Yeah. And he tweeted recruiting rankings do not matter to college coaches. No coach has ever asked what a recruit was ranked in order to recruit them or not. Rankings are subjective to those who are ranking them and in most cases are often political. Just play basketball and be the best player you can be. Now, I think a lot of that is right. Uh, I think that from a coach's perspective and certainly from a player's perspective, I don't think that recruiting rankings, people should... It's hard. Uh, it's a hard conversation because I think that they do matter. Um, but I would be interested to hear your perspective on this because now you've been on both sides of the recruiting ranking, you know, issue because you were a D3 coach, much like uh, Khalil Shakir seems to be. And I, I don't know Khalil. Khalil I want to be clear about that. Um, and I don't think this is a bad tweet by any stretch. I just... Uh, want to discuss it because I think it's interesting. Um, you were a D3 coach and you're now a high school coach and you're helping kids on that side of it. And you've been recruiting kids on the other side of it before. So when you see that tweet, what is your immediate reaction to it? I think for me, my, my first thought is that a lot of it is really accurate, but also a lot of it is accurate from the context of being a division three coach where, you know, recruiting rankings, like if you ever get anybody who's just been ranked or has a star next to your name, like that's a huge coup for the, the school that you're at. Um, I tend to think that recruiting rankings matter for the kind of public facing the external piece of recruiting, keeping fan bases happy, alumni and boosters feeling like the coaches at that division one school are doing a really good job because it's easy. It's tangible. I mean, at the end of the day, we still hear a lot publicly about how many five-star recruits have been brought in over this period of time, who has the number one overall ranked signing class. And, and really he's right. It is subjective and it, it's done by those who, who rank them for a, a really uh, not necessarily an unimportant reason, but I do think that 
it, it's for content. I'll, it's not for it like basketball. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of it is, you know, follow the leader where there are multiple different uh, sources out there that do these rankings. One finds a kid and ends up moving him up their board. Everybody else kind of follows suit, particularly. Well, the, the other one is, let's say Kentucky offers a kid. Right. Then the kid tends to sky up the board because it's just like, wait, what are we missing? Kentucky offered the kid. Right. So there's, there's so many external factors that kind of, you know, compound this entire process of what goes into a player getting ranked in a certain area, the reputability of the high school, the prep school, the program that they're coming from the AAU program and team. A a lot of times that stuff really matters and ends up carrying guys a little bit farther up or down the rankings. What I think college coaches really look for are play style at a certain position as opposed to prolific ranking. That there can be a really, really good, you know, pass first point guard that fits into a certain coach's preference or system and saying, hey, we've got great shooters. We've got a big man who can play in this class. We just think we need one guy to distribute the basketball and live in the lane. They can fall in love with a guy who has you know, a three star ranking, so to speak, and prefer him to a guy that's ranked 75th in the country just because it fits more of a need for you know what they're looking for or what that coach prefers. So I don't get too up in arms about, you know, oh, are they how many guys in the top 100 is, is this program necessarily taking? Um, but I think a lot of times for those mid-major schools, it ends up being really, really important to nab somebody that is in that top you know, 100, that the top 75, wherever it ends up being as a means of, wow, what a great get for this school. It can really save job security for a coach or a coaching staff to poach a guy that they might not necessarily be expected to get who does have that national notoriety. So I think that's right. Uh, I also will note though, I think that coaches that use recruiting rankings. And I just know coaches who use them at the end of the day. Like I, I do. And the coaches who use them tell me that they don't use them in the way that fans do. They don't use them in the way that like, you know, other people on the internet consume them. Right. They use them as essentially talent identification uh like lists right okay hey i haven't gotten eyes on this kid yet yeah. uh i didn't know about this kid i didn't know about that kid and i think that is where recruiting rankings do matter they do in some cases give publicity to kids that in some cases could use it um especially at the higher levels like even I, I would even say like a 10 and above, like it can be something of a weeding out process for some coaches where it's like, okay, the odds are that if this kid is outside of the top hundred, especially now with mm-hmm. the availability of transfers, with the availability of everything, we may not need to get like full eyes on this kid. Now, if one of their coaching contacts on the high school level or on the AAU level says, Hey, look, I've got this kid. He's ranked like 225th in the country right now. 
we have no idea what recruiting rankings are missing. He's a stud. Come take a look. Of course they're going to go take a look. And that's when recruiting rankings don't matter, right? Once coaches get eyes on a kid, that's when recruiting rankings go out the window. But I think that purely from a talent identification standpoint and from a list of knowing where to start almost from time to time for college coaches at the highest and you know even the mid-major levels at times from time to time the higher mid-major levels let's say Mm -hmm. i do think that recruiting rankings matter uh Mm -hmm. and i think that they play an important role in the process in that way and also like let's be real about it recruiting rankings at the top end miss uh regularly but they're also pretty good. Like if you look at the percentages of five stars that play in the NBA versus four stars that play in the NBA versus three stars that play in the NBA, like it, it, the, these guys who do recruiting rankings do a really good job. And by the way, like I don't want to, uh, you know, shield myself from criticism here because what are mock drafts in big boards, if not just recruiting rankings for the NBA. Right. Um, yeah, like, look, NBA teams tell me that they use my board to take a look at guys that they haven't gotten an eye on. Like, mm-hmm. once they get an eye on him, they don't give a shit what I think. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe they do. Maybe it's someone that I have a relationship with and that I'm, you know, someone that respects my opinion and they want to have a second conversation with me. You know, hey, why do you think this? Why do you think that? I watch this guy. You know, I, I see what you're seeing here, etc. But... I think recruiting rankings matter from a talent identification standpoint when it comes to coaches at the end of the day is how I would kind of define it. Wouldn't you? Yeah, I think so. I think it helps know what list of prospects to be able to look at when you go out to an event. Uh, you know, each staff member for a division one staff will go to a different AAU tournament, a different event that's going on on different weekends. And they've got a list of guys that they need to see. They've probably got an AAU coach or two who, you know, they want to keep a good relationship with that program. Make sure you go check out that one game or somebody else hits them up and says, Hey, we've got a guy, he's not on this list, but you definitely need to check him out. They get around and they see a bunch of these guys and make their own evals. I don't think that they're copy and pasting, you know, what's on 24 seven for the, the eval side of things and putting that in for their own internal notes. But I think one area that at least a lot of the conversations that I've had and in my experience as a college coach that a site like uh, Verbal Commits or something else that details what schools and what programs are interested in a guy tend to have a lot more impact on the depth of recruiting that I might do. So, you know, if I am, this is complete hypothetical, if I'm a school in the Atlantic 10 and I really like this kid, but I see that he has every Big 10 school, every ACC school after him having those conversations, it might be realistic of me to take a step back and say, hey, we have a good relationship with the kid. We might be able to land him, but if we pour all of our energy into that and we're trying to fight off Duke and Kentucky, that's not a battle we're going to win every single time. We need to be more realistic and probably pivot to include somebody else in our the top of our recruiting board right now. So I think that rankings matter because that's the easiest and first place to look for those top guys, but it can also be the detriment to a lot of these mid-major schools who find a guy first, have a really good relationship with him, start building that recruitment. And then as he blows up and moves up those recruiting rankings and you see those other schools start to, to latch onto him, 
then it's it's a lot harder to maintain that momentum for the mid-major. Sam, I think you're uh, I think you're still on mute there. Oh no, I was muted. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I think you're dead on and I think that like at the end of the day what does not matter is the number. Like that that's it. Like the 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 number next to the player. If a guy is ranked number 1 or number 3 or number 6 or number 10, I I don't think Kentucky cares that Kaysen Wallace was ranked what what was he? Um what was Kaysen Wallace? He was probably like number nine in the country, something like that. Number eight. I, I don't think Kentucky gives a shit that Kaysen Wallace was number eight in the country. I can almost guarantee you that there are not seven players in the country that Kentucky would take over Kaysen Wallace. You know what I mean? Uh, that's just period, point blank. Um, same with, you know, Arkansas with Nick Smith. Same with X, Y, and Z. It's the same with drafting a player, right? Uh, the odds are that the team that drafts a player had them much higher on their big board than where the rankings were like Memphis almost certainly had David Roddy 20 spots to 30 spots higher than any other team in the NBA. I would bet. Um, I don't know where they had David Roddy on their board. I would bet you that it was probably in the, Again, like I can't emphasize this enough. I do not know this. This is me speculating based on where they took him and based on the fact that they essentially traded D'Anthony Melton for him. I would venture they had him somewhere in the early teens, like late lottery range. And they decided to take him. And I would bet that no other team had him higher than 26th. 30th, something like that. So 15 to 20. And then most teams probably had him in the second round because most teams I talked to had him in the second round. So I think that it holds true for recruiting rankings as well, that most teams are higher on the guys that they recruit at the end of the day. Like they have their own boards, teams like their own players, right? And part of it is like a winnowing out process with recruiting rankings too, because it's not like a perfect ecosystem where, you know, each team has a chance theoretically to draft each player that is available to them when their time comes. Um, You know, like I I would venture that uh, UT Arlington had no chance at getting Case and Wallace, right? Even though he's from Texas, right? Um yeah, I would venture that Nebraska, even like someone like that, had no chance of getting Casey Wallace, even though he was committed or even though he's like from Texas. And theoretically, you could make a case that they could go into Texas and get a kid like that. Right. So you're going to get weeded out. Kids are going to go down to my 10 favorite schools, my five finalists, my three finalists, whatever it's going to be. And, and, and graphic each time, Sam, they've got to put out some sort of a graphic on Twitter each time they narrow that list down. You know, people get up in arms about the graphics and I just can't like, you know what? Like if kids want to do the graphics, that's cool. I'm I'm not going to like, this is like a, it's, it's all, I don't even know if this is a Goodman pet project, but it sounds like a Goodman complaint. So I'm going to assume that it's been a Goodman complaint in the past. I just don't really care. Like I go for it. Have fun with the, the graphics guys. Um, but it's, it's just, yeah, I, uh, 
I think recruiting rankings matter. They just matter in a different way than what people think. From the player side, I will say, as a coach, where I think Khalil Shakir is right, is I think that it is harmful for players to give a shit where they're ranked. Um, I get that it's like easy to latch on to a name. And this is why I take like tremendous care and probably why I tend to be more conservative on moving guys like up and down the board on the mock and on my big board than what other people on the internet seem to be. Um, I, I really try to take tremendous care because I think that it can be very easy to kind of jump into that rat race of caring where your ranking is. And I know that players can be hurt by it from time to time. And I think my advice for all players would be like, no, you should not care where you are ranked. It does not help you in any way uh, to care where you're ranked. And that's where I think this advice is actually really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. If it's aimed at players, it's, it's dead on the money there. And I mean, go where you're wanted is what I always used to say. Go where you're wanted, where you're going to be successful, where a coach is going to value you. If you go somewhere with the intent of always trying to leave and just go to the next stop with, I know we'll talk about the transfer portal and how crazy that can be in college basketball now, but Go somewhere where you think you can stay, where you think you can be comfortable, and you think you can impact winning and, and do what you do well. You know, a lot of times just going to the highest level, the highest school, is like you know trying to jam a square peg in a round hole. At the end of the day, go somewhere where you individually can be successful and trust, and this is a hard thing to do nowadays, but trust that the adults in the room or those who are around you are trying to get yep. you in a position that's going to allow you to be successful, not just what looks good for them. And you got to you got to trust those people. But uh, I think that there are enough good ones out there who do have students' best interests at heart. And you got to find the right people. Yes, this part yep. of it. Like yep. uh, I, I was talking to an agent today, and we had some conversations about some people that around kids that we think have some pretty unrealistic expectations, and that can be a shame as well. Um, because I, I can assure you that most of the kids ranked in the top sixty-five in the top 100 think they're probably going to be a one and done entering college. Um, Some of them don't like, that's not a blanket statement. That is not a, um, that's not a, Oh yeah. Like this is, you know, there are certainly guys that go in thinking, yeah, like I'm going to stick around. I'm a project player. Like it's going to take a couple years for me, but a lot of them think that, you know, I'm going to be here one year and I'm going to be out. And then they stick around for a couple years. They get better then they make the leap. The next part of this that you wanted to talk about was just roster building in college basketball. And I think that that is something the college coaches are trying to figure out right now, as I've talked to them throughout the off season um, from NIL, where there are some teams that are so far drastically ahead of the game right now in terms of NIL and others that you would think would be ahead of the game that are not quite ahead of the game yet. Um, 
I think that everyone's trying to wrap their head around that new paradigm. Everyone's trying to wrap their head around the transfer portal, which is now in a couple of different since what second season, I would say of being really, truly genuinely like an important part, not to say the transfers haven't always been like an essential part, but the proliferation and expansion of this thing has just gotten absolutely crazy. And then NIL this year from the Nigel pack thing to Baylor Shireman to everyone, right. That was in the portal uh, and was impacted by NIL. I mean, this thing is pretty, it's pretty essential. And I think that it obviously has trickle down effect on recruits and high school kids and how much time should college coaches be spending scouting transfers, scouting college kids? Frankly, it costs a lot more money for schools to travel around the country to get eyes on recruits than it does to watch tape and try and recruit guys in the transfer portal and target like X, Y, and Z guy to go and visit or to bring down for a visit. So where are you at on this? Because this is where I think things get th- – this is a very, very interesting shifting paradigm right now within college basketball. And I don't know uh, I don't know what the right track is. For instance, in the SEC, Kentucky is recruiting. Like Kentucky is going out. They're trying to top up with transfers like Antonio Reeves, um, CJ Frederick. But more than that, they're just going out and recruiting still. Their recruiting class this coming year is going to be absurd. And I really like Kaysom Wallace and what I saw from Chris Livingston as well. Um, then on the other side in the SEC, you have Florida, who I believe just kind of said like they are recruiting transfers more than like out on the recruiting trail. They think it's a more efficient way to go out and get talent that is ready to play college basketball. Where, where do you lie on all of this right now as we kind of move forward here? Yeah, it's I mean, it's certainly a changing time in college basketball right now. And there are going to be a lot of those purists, the old men yelling at clouds of, can't we just go back to the way it used to be with four-year players? Like, no, those days are gone. And as I always say, the the fastest ones who adapt to the changing climate are the ones who end up really succeeding both in the short term and probably in the long term. I think that the great part about where we're at right now is that there are are multiple ways to skin a cat. You can build a championship-level team in your league – whatever in the entirety of the NCAA by going many different avenues, whether it's through freshmen and trying to recruit a bunch of either one and dones or young talent, whether it's through the transfer portal, through continuity. I think there are other avenues that we can talk about with international and, and kind of junior college ranks, which are transfers or, or, you know, incoming guys to a certain degree, but a, yeah. a different track that you usually take to get there. Um, I think it depends on the school. You know, you have to have awareness of who you are, what your strengths as an institution are, and what the competition is like in the league. You know, you won't recruit at Duke and North Carolina the same way that you would at Mississippi State or at Iowa State. Like the the schools and the the advantages that they have are going to be very different. So yep. what I think about the transfer portal right now, I keep calling it mercenary basketball. Um, but what we have to <laughs> – what we have to keep in a perspective is at the college level, college coaches are concerned with one thing first and foremost, and that's winning games. It's finding yeah. a way to extend their own contracts, continue to stay around within their programs. That's what they have to be concerned with. And there's no more proven way 
to help yourself win games than to have a proven evaluation guy come into your program. And the transfer portal yeah. allows. And there are still questions with, you know, moving from one level up to another at times, but it's a much more sure thing to take a guy who has succeeded at the low major or mid-major level into the SEC than it is to take a chance on a three or four star freshman. And that's, it's unfortunate, but that's kind of the way it is. Well, I think teams have gotten a lot better to at using, maybe I shouldn't say all teams. I know a few teams that have gotten better at using models to try and project which guys are going to be a little bit better moving up levels um, as opposed to other guys not being as successful. Uh, yeah, you just look at the last two champions. I mean, Baylor in 2021 had Davion Mitchell transfer from Auburn, Macy Oteague transfer from UNC Asheville, Adam Flagler transfer from Presbyterian, if I remember correctly. Um, Yeah, three critical guys in their lineup that came via the transfer portal. And then you look at this year's champion, which was Kansas, and Kansas was largely built by recruiting. David McCormick, four-year player, was a top 40 recruit in the country. Oshag Baji, four-year player, was a steal for them. Uh, I think he was ranked outside the top 200, but um, they evaluated well and trusted a scout or trusted an evaluator that spotted him and said, hey, you guys need to take a look at him, and they did, and they ended up recruiting him. Jalen Wilson, former top 70 recruit. Dewan Harris, uh I don't know where Dwan was ranked. I think he was a little bit lower. Yeah, he was lower. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, those, Christian Brown, top 60 recruit, if I remember correctly. Like these guys were just there for a long time. They built together and won a national title together. And then they topped up with Remy Martin, who they thought was going to be a bigger piece of it than he ended up being. And with, you know, Jalen Coleman lands, Joey Sufu, like guys that, you know, came off the bench for them were somewhat useful from time to time, but uh, this was a team that was built more off of recruiting at the end of the day. And I think that two teams in the big 12 back-to-back national title winners built to- two totally different ways. Yeah. You can do it both ways. You can skin the cat both ways. It's just that you need to commit to a process. Yes. Yeah. I think that frankly, for high majors, you should be doing a bit of both. Like if I was a high major coach, which thank God I am not, uh, cause I can't teach people anything. Come on. I would probably focus more of my energy on the transfer portal. And I think it's because there are proven players. And because unlike five years ago, I think there actually is enough high-end talent that is experienced to be able to go to go and win a title now. I think you can go and find enough higher-end talent. Whereas five years ago, I would have said, you know, I, I think that you probably can't get the dude in the portal anymore. I think you probably can't find that number one option in the portal anymore. Um, now I think you can. Mm-hmm. And because you can, I think think that I would focus more of my energy there, but I would also focus recruiting particularly on these marginal inefficiency areas like international recruiting, I think is a real place 
where even though more schools are doing it, more and more schools are involved there and are evaluating players. I still think a lot of schools don't have a great feel for what guys are going to be successful, what guys aren't. Like I remember talking to a few college coaches about Josh Giddy versus Mojave King because um, the academy came over and um, I think that was during a final four maybe. And they were like, oh yeah, like Mojave King's going to be way better than Josh Giddy. Like I think we take Giddy, but like we really want like Mojave King. And I was like, wait, what now? Like, even then I was like, wait, Josh is like six foot seven at the time. Uh, I think he wasn't quite six foot nine yet. And he is a point guard and he's like a basketball savant, like take that guy. Um, But I think college coaches haven't quite nailed down like the international recruiting side of it yet and international scouting and the contextual scouting of what each region is and you know where the players are and everything not to say i'm an expert in it but like i think they haven't quite figured that side of it out yet and because of that the schools that are good at it and if you can get good at it it's a marginal inefficiency for you as a program um you mentioned the juco rankings i think that there are some there's some world to do that um where else where else do we see marginal inefficiencies right now you know, I, I think I just want to piggyback on those two real quickly. Like with the international route, those who have done it and done it well have won at the highest levels pretty much as a result of it, that that's yeah. what ends up filling out their roster in great ways. Like Arizona has gotten Kirk Reese, uh, Azulis Tabellis, Henry Visar coming in this year. Gonzaga has had. Ben Matherin's another one also, by the way, because he was from the um, academy in Mexico City. Right. At, uh, Joel Ayayi at Gonzaga, Rui Hachimura played in, in Japan, you know, like Demonis Sabonis to a certain extent. Like a bunch of these programs that have gone that route have been really successful. And the, the thing that, that strikes me is, is talent is talent. And you yeah. and I both attach, you know, attack a lot of this from an NBA perspective. We've seen multiple international guys go in the first round and either come over to college for one year and become a one and done type of guy like Jeremy Sohan was, you know, he, he played high school in the States, I know, but uh, you know, there are so many good international players that end up making an impact in the NBA or getting drafted when they're 19 years old. Mm-hmm. Why are college coaches and programs not going after that same talent? Like I look at guys like Tyrese Proctor and Baba Miller coming into yeah. Florida state this year like those are great gets for those two programs because they're slightly under recruited guys that can return incredibly, incredibly high value. And like, and here's the thing, like I can tell you Tyrese Proctor has been a known commodity here in Australia for four years, at least he's like, awesome. yeah, he is been well known and he's so smart. Like, look, I have my, concerns in terms of why i'm not quite sure he's one and done yet uh i do worry about his ability to handle the ball a little bit in the half court he has a bit of a high handle he plays very upright i don't think he gets the most out of his ability to create shots out of you know when he's out on an island with a defender right uh but he's a fucking savant in the pick and roll uh, he knows exactly how to make every single read. He's a good defender. He's six foot four and a half. He has gr- good length, not like amazing length. Mm-hmm. Um, he's athletic. Like these are guys that help you win. If the shot comes along, he's going to be really valuable. 
Baba Miller. Wild card. What? He's a wild card. Like he's got so wild card. So many flashes of elite skills. No one knows if he can put it together consistently. But again, like Florida State has had success with players like this before in developing them and getting them to a a spot where they can be ready for the NBA, where it seems like a win win for both sides. That this is a player that they like and a guy who can benefit from being there. And I'm glad you brought him up, particularly in the context of like Jeremy Sohan, right? Because that that's what the hope is. Like Sohan this time last year was considered a bit of a wild card entering the draft process. Um, and he emerged at Baylor. If Baba Miller emerges at Florida State this year, that would not be a surprise as a sixth man at all. He has all of the talent in the world to be able to do so. I didn't put him on my way too early mock because – I worry a little bit about like, is he going to get minutes at Florida State? Just given how raw he is, Leonard Leonard Hamilton tends to bring guys along a little bit more slowly if they are more raw in the way that Miller is. Um, I worry that he just might not be a one and done because of that. But the talent is there. That guy's definitely going to play in the NBA. Like I have very few doubts. He's just so gifted the flashes at like six foot 11 handling the ball. It's, I mean, he's, he's unbelievable uh, in terms of the flashes. It's just um, whether or not it all comes together this year or next year, when um, the kid's incredibly talented, but those are the kids you can find overseas that like, I would venture Florida state had competition for sure for Baba Miller but it's nowhere near the competition that, say, um, you know, Texas had for Dylan Mitchell. Sure. And I don't see them as like wildly different right now in terms of like long term prospects. Do you? No, not necessarily. I, I think I prefer. They're both guys. wild cards on some level. Yeah, they are. I, pr- I prefer guys who have a little bit more shooting trajectory. And I think Baba has that in ways that Dylan might not right now. But yeah, they're, they're yeah. both really up in the air. It could be one and dones, could be multi year guys in college. Yeah. Um, but I would bet that Florida State evaluated him and just had a cleaner pathway to getting him than Texas probably had trying to recruit Dylan Mitchell. Sure. Um, or someone someone like that, or like Tennessee had trying to get Julian Phillips, right? And I do like Baba Miller more than Julian Phillips. So like guys like that, like in the United States, are just picked over, whereas in Europe, in Africa, in Australia, in you know the academies, like you can find these guys. You can. They're talented. Um, so just kind of looking through our. Uh, our little agenda here. I mean, what, what else do we want to, what else do we want to hit on here? Trying to figure this out. You mentioned the idea of mercenary basketball. Yeah. I, I think that's a little harsh. Sure. I think it's a little harsh. And and look, I always say like, if you're a player and you have a successful season at a mid major or low major school, you have to put your name in the portal because NIL stuff, the way that it it works out now, I mean, there are life changing opportunities in so many different fashions. Uh, yeah. That it, you know, it's not meant to be punishing a kid for not being loyal to a school. It's it's the reality of the situation in the world that we live in. It's tough on those mid major, low major programs that do a great job of identifying and developing talent. 
to then kind of be a, a feeder for the rest of high major basketball sometimes. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, like it, it is in the bet, this is all good for the kid, all good for the yeah. athlete to have these avenues to go up to, but there is, you know, a downside sometimes to the portal. Like I, I you know, have a tweet up from coach Tate, uh, somebody else you brought, you brought a tweet. I'm going to bring a tweet, Sam. Woo. Uh, let's go. Here we go. Coach Tate from CCA men's basketball had something out there, went viral the end of July. One in 12 transfers actually end up transferring up in the portal. The rest are either lateral or moved down. So it's not like this is a universal win for athletes, but the ones who are really good, who are guided the right ways by their circle around them, they benefit hugely from something like this. The, the backup and the trickle effect is down on high school. And I think if there's one area that we we didn't talk about a ton right there, it's not necessarily the elite high school recruits, the top ranked guys, as we just talked about for whatever that means, the, you know, the avenues of, of high end recruits that they need to hit, but it's everybody else. Because if you're a, a mid-major school, a low major, and you were supposed to have this rising junior or rising senior on your roster who you were building around and you knew was going to be an important part of your success over the next year or two. And he ends up getting poached to a different program. You can't just replace him with a, an incoming freshman who you might have some questions about or somebody else who's, who's still on there. You have to take a more certain, a more known commodity on the transfer portal if you can. And it, it really backs up recruiting. I mean, we're seeing a ton of guys take an extra prep school year just to try yeah. to match up with, where recruiting is going to be because, Hey, if I'm not wanted in the class of 2023 right now, it's going to be hard for me to get an offer. I got to extend my timeline by myself another year. And what we've seen more of right now is over the summer, a bunch of guys who had originally either been in that class, that high school class of 23 or had taken a prep year and reclassed are seeing that there is an opportunity for them at the, the division one level and then jumping in either a year early or changing their plans to, to take advantage of that opportunity. Like mm. I know Loyola, Maryland, just this past week had a kid who they were recruiting for the class of 22. He made a decision to prep and go 23. They looked at their roster over the summer and said, you know what? We might be able to use you right now. Do you want to come play with us this season? And he said, all right, screw the prep school thing. I'm going to go and I'm going to get here. So Yep. You know, buying yourself an extra year and looking at that prep route, it sounds enticing. It sounds like it's what we have to do, but there aren't the same opportunities for them as there are for everybody transferring in college basketball. There are only so many programs out there that you can take a, a fifth year or an extra prep year at that are going to help you get to the, the division one level that you want to. So everything is backed up because of this. A again, Nobody is in the wrong for doing what's best for their program. I think at every step of the way, high majors, mid majors, low levels, e even the division twos and division threes who are dipping into the portal and taking other guys, they're all doing what they have to do and what's best for their program. There is always going to be somebody left out when you give a bunch of guys that are college basketball players an extra year to be able to take in the NCAA, just kind of blanket waivers, almost everybody. And that's high school kids. Now, I think talent always rises to the top and it's going to continue to. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a really strange time recruiting wise in college basketball to the point where I think there are definite hidden gems that are still out there. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I really agree with you. And I wonder if we see more 
Keegan Murray's and Chris Murray's that end up kind of popping out of nowhere in, you know, where do they go? Daytona, Daytona, uh, to down in Florida to a prep school and then pop up at Iowa. Um, and then Keegan's just like this ready made, you know, mm-hmm. college guy who was an impact player as a freshman and then was the best player in the country as a sophomore, basically. Right. So, and and that, yeah. that all happens a year sooner, be, or at least a year earlier in their college careers because they had that extra year of development on the back end. So, like, college teams are still going to benefit from this in the long run. It's just, yeah. it's going to take a lot of shifting and adjusting around to figure out how to get this process going for everybody. Well, where, where the NIL side comes in is interesting as well, because we haven't really talked a lot about it and it, it's the game now it, it, it's, it's, it's the whole ball game almost not the whole ball game for the guys at the top, but like the guys at the top of the pyramid, it's the biggest part of the ball game. Um, and anyone that isn't, writing about it anybody that isn't talking about it is kidding themselves like anyone that's still acting like recruiting is like this oh it's this push pull between the coaches that do the best job of creating relationships and um you know look relationships matter unequivocally relationships matter in this business who's bringing the most to the table in the nil game yeah that matters much more than uh, maybe not much more than the relationship, but it matters equally as much, if not more in a lot of cases. And people need to stop having their head in the sand about it. Um, I've seen a few legacy writers do some things on recruiting this summer and not mention NIL. And I'm just like, wait, like I've heard things on the NIL side, like why are we not addressing this as a factor? And if you're not addressing it and you're writing that a person committed somewhere, decommitted from somewhere, um, chose a school for a reason, incoming freshmen as well, like not Mm -hmm. just commitments to Mm -hmm. stuff. It's like, if you're not writing about the NIL side and you're trying to say that he committed to school for another reason, you can't really write that. It's not really accurate. Totally. Like you have to address, you have to address the NIL elephant in the room. It is no longer um, acceptable to not discuss it. Like that's what I love about what Nigel Pack did, for instance, and transfers as well. We should throw in here as well. Like Nigel Pack is making $400,000 this year. Baylor Shireman's NIL stuff was fairly, was like a real thing, right? Like, There are at NIL is absolutely a critical, critical part of this and schools need to have their NIL shit together. It is no longer we're going to get by just by being better at creating relationships with recruits. You need to have a collective. You need to have people you can go to, to set these kids up for NIL success. Otherwise you are not going to be as successful moving forward as a college recruiter. Bingo. Yep. It's, you can't be the curmudgeon who doesn't want to get on board with it's, it's no, you said elephant. it's no longer an elephant. Like this is the reality of the world that everybody here is living in. And Nigel Pack, like $400,000 is life changing money. I'd love to have $400,000. That would mean a lot to me. And you know, we can't, you can't 
analyze the decisions unless you know the landscape that's going on behind the scenes in all of those areas. And, you know, I'm not the most well-connected and plugged into every single NIL decision business and offering, but at the end of the day, if you're going to be a division one college basketball coach, you've got to have organization there. It probably needs to be done from the athletic department as a whole, but as a head coach, you've got to be able to oversee that for your program. Great connects and contact with your boosters and you have to know how to use it the right way and having conversations with recruits. It just, it, yeah. you have to. No, I think that's dead on. I think it's absolutely dead on. Um, it's just, it is what it is. And now the, the final question here is just like when you're building a roster in the uh, era of transfers and in the era of you can have a different roster every single year if you want. Like if you want to have a different group of players every year that you're coaching, you can do that. You can bring in grad transfers every single time. Texas Tech is going to have a brand new team, it feels like. And then on the other side, you know, you mentioned TCU. They're going to have basically the same team uh, that they had last year. And I think TCU is in a really good spot, actually. How do you weigh continuity versus stasis versus just trying to do something new? Because I think that sometimes – I see this all the time with football more than basketball on the college side. How many returning starters does the team have? Team has 17 returning starters, right? If the starters suck, it doesn't matter. Like (laughs) it doesn't matter. So you go out and you find commitments, you find kids that are actually good and that helps you build your roster. I think having roster flexibility, we talk about in context of the NBA all the time is super valuable. Um, and that's where having a couple of grad transfer spots just rolling over every year, I think is super valuable. Again, I think recruiting is really valuable. Like I want guys that I can build and grow and mature and have continuity with. Like I love what Ohio state did this year. Yeah. Shout out the alma mater. I know, but they go, they get Bryce Sensabaugh, uh, Roddy Gale, Felix Opara, Bruce Thornton, missing one um but they went out and they got a few guys to help out in terms of transfers as well i think they're actually in a really good spot now to be able to go and find success uh because they have some older guys that will help the younger guys uh you know someone like a sean mcneil and ice likely like uh they went out and they got the right state kid who's the other state who's the uh, right state holden Tanner Holden. Yeah. The cutting machine, uh, Tanner Holden, um, like going out and getting those guys, it's going to be super valuable for the kids. Like it's going to be very, very valuable to go be able to play next to those guys. Um, but the kids are the talent. And I think that maybe none of them are one and dones. That's what the crazy thing is. Like college coaches almost now have to consider too. It's no longer the most talented players who are the most talented players that I think are multi-year guys. Yeah. Not necessarily like immediate one and done talents. And that's even harder to identify when you're recruiting them at 16 years old, 15 years old. Well, while also not saying directly to them, Hey, I'm recruiting you because I think that you're a multi-year guy. You have to be able to sell the right. upside of one and done right. because that's what everybody at that level wants to hear. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, everybody in the top 60 probably thinks they're going to be a one and done type of guy. I think there are like 17 or 18 guys that end up going to the draft that played one year of college basketball every year. 
it's around that number. Like it's, it's not a lot. So, you know, it, it's, it's just a, a lot of balls to juggle um, in terms of how do you build a roster the right way? I'm glad there are multiple ways to do it. I'm glad that each of the last two national champions have had different pathways to get there because it proves that there can be so many different ways to do it. I mean, John Beeline was notorious for multi-year guys and for developing talent and just having an eye for identifying those that were ranked outside of those top areas and still winning 20 to 25 games a year. There are so many ways to be able to do it. But as I always say, know who you are as a coach, know what your school's strengths are. And for the love of God, please, everybody out there, make sure that you're tapped in on the NIL and have everything organized. You have to. Yeah, you absolutely have to. Okay. Uh, Adam, it's mailbag time. Okay. This is a good one from Kevin Ferris. Let's start here. Did you watch any of Kentucky in the Bahamas? Do you have thoughts? I didn't watch any full games, uh, but the timeline was buzzing about Damian Collins. That is just one guy I've always been super fascinated by, um, you know, up and down freshman year, hard to get consistent minutes with all of the, the front court bodies that they had last year and the severe need for spacing in Kentucky whenever you have severe Wheeler and Oscar Shibway sharing the floor together. So wasn't yeah. the greatest spot for Collins as a freshman. I think he's, getting a little bit more comfortable with his jumper. Like he hit one really intriguing dribble pull up uh, going to his left, which just caught my eye a little bit, but I I didn't watch a ton. Uh, I don't know if if you did Sam, but I I did hear a lot of positive things with that grain of salt of it's kind of international play, international competition. Yeah. I watched a couple of games and then saw some highlights. The guy that stood out to me was Jacob Toppin. Um, I thought Jacob Toppin looked really good. Like, surprise! Like, not surprising because look, this is I think the age where Obi took the leap as well. Um, but I thought Obi Toppin or not J- Obi Jacob Toppin looked really, really good. I thought uh, athletic was really a menace defensively. I thought he moved his feet really, really well. Uh, I thought that uh, offensively he made shots. I still want to see the way that he looks in terms of making shots in full speed games, because these teams that they played in the Bahamas, they're just not as athletic as, you know, the teams they'll play in the sec, not as skilled, not as, you know, cohesive defensively, all that stuff. Um, I want to see what Jacob's shot mechanics look like when played at speed, but if he's going to knock down shots, if he's going to knock down these little mid range floaters consistently, if he's going to be that active defensively, Oh man, I, I uh, we shouldn't rule him out getting drafted. Is yeah. what I would say. Yeah. Um, he he looked like a very, 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 very trackable draft prospect uh, in the Bahamas. I thought uh, moving forward. Um, I also liked Casey Wallace, but I've always loved Casey yeah. Wallace. He's a dog, and he defends, and he's a great slasher, and he can score like. I don't know. I think Kaysom Wallace is like a pretty safe lottery pick this year, but I'm, uh, I think I'm a little bit higher on Kaysom than what the general population seems to be. I, I like Kaysom a lot. Kentucky guard theory, man. I just, I always buy into those guys being good pros and, and he's, yeah. he, he really defends. I, I, I'm a big fan. No, I agree. Okay. Um, from 
SF hoops. What do you think of Keontae George's athleticism slash burst and his finishing at the rim? I haven't identified any issues with them necessarily in the, in the glimpses that I've been able to see. Like, I think that he's in some regards, sneaky athletic. And in other regards, he leaves a little bit desired with like just the imposing nature of how he comes across on film at times. I, I like Keontae. I, I really like his game. I wish he was a yeah. little bigger. Um, you know, I, I think that his game would be really effective if he were six, 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 seven, not really six, four, yeah. six, five, but, um, yeah, nothing really stands out to me that, that is a major plus or a major minus in any type of way. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I actually quite like Keontae. I, I was surprised by how successful he was immediately uh, for Baylor in that uh, series of games they played in Canada. Yeah. I, I thought he was outstanding. I thought he was just like so comfortable, so poised, so polished. Um, the fact that Scott Drew just like let him roll uh, said a lot to me. Like the fact that Scott was just like, hey, got to go. Like yeah. we, this, we got this guy, we got to let him go. And yeah, I, I've liked Keontae, but I didn't think it would be like that from the jump. And it was, and he's going to, he's going to be really, really good. I, I liked his, I think that, like you said, I think he has good, like last step burst, mm-hmm. maybe like I, I haven't put my finger on it totally. Like I think he has good last step burst that kind of allows him to maybe get around guys a little bit easier at the rim. It feels like um, you wouldn't think he'd be like an exceptional finisher, but he had success in the games that I saw in Canada. So I, I don't know what to make of it yet. Yeah, and, and they're going to be loaded this year, Baylor. I mean, their guard yeah. depth is ridiculous. And what what makes it work for a guy like Keontae is I think everybody pretty much shoots the ball really well from three. Yeah. So he can have the ball in his hands and be surrounded by guards that space the floor at a really, really high level. And I think that's going to go a long way in giving him a little bit more space to get to the rim. Yeah, I mean, look, it's going to – I would think their starters are him, LJ Cryer, and – Adam Flagler, and then they'll bring Langston Love and Dale Bonner off the bench. Uh, and then they also have the Dantuan Grimes kid. Like, uh, that's a loaded backcourt, but particularly Cryer and Flagler are knockdown shooters. That's going to open the court so, so much. Probably going to play Jalen Bridges at the four. Jalen's a good floor spacer as a spot up four man from the corner. Uh, Chachua is a killer role man. Uh, yeah, th- this this is set up for an enormous Keon jo- Keontae George uh, season, I think. Just an absolutely enormous one. Um, okay, let's see here. Under the rate from Andrew Beckner, under the radar returning players who could have an Obi Toppin or Keegan Murray type leap this upcoming season. The mocks are heavy with freshmen for next season. It seems. Yeah. I, uh, I specifically tried to avoid that. I think I did like 16 freshmen, 14 uh, underclassmen uh, or 14 returning players. Cause that's the average. Uh, it's something in the range of like 14 to I think it's like 13 to 15, basically uh, returning players go in the first round every year. Um, some, uh, who are some of the guys that you're looking at? I'll ask you first. 
Yeah, I mean, I think a popular name is Arthur Kaluma at Creighton. Yeah, uh, I mean, just he has made a lot of progression in the later part of the season, which a lot of times when you're looking at breakout guys, especially as sophomores, it's did they finish the year on a really high note? And is there increased opportunity for them to be kind of the man within their offense and their uh, the system that they're playing? And I think Kaluma is going to have both. He was really good this summer and, and spring uh, for Uganda, just growing confidence, you know, six, eight, seven foot wingspan looks the part physically. I wouldn't call him an elite athlete, but somebody who's a very good athlete, uh, the shot is the one question mark, and it looks to be a little bit more smooth and fluid. If he's able to, to knock down threes at a pretty high level, I think he's a really good, just intriguing, well-rounded type of player. And then I'll throw one more out there, just a guy who I know I tend to irrationally like a little bit, Jordan Hawkins at Connecticut. Um, really big fan of just the tools that he has. Again, it's going to come down to whether he puts it all together. Uh, didn't shoot the ball or finish it incredibly efficiently as a freshman, but showed me some really impressive flashes. I think his best pathway forward, at least for pro basketball, is going to be being a lockdown kind of perimeter defender at one through three. Really athletic, good length. I think this year Hurley's going to hand him the keys a little bit more to the offense. You know, UConn is losing R.J. Cole and needs more of a primary creator in the half court to step up. He's shown the ability to make some decent passes on the move. He has a pretty reliable pull-up game in the mid-range. I would expect him to get a, a larger role in that offense, as well as transfer Tristan Newton, who's coming in. Uh, I, I like the Huskies a lot. I think you know Hawkins is built for a, a breakout campaign, but I think Kaluma is kind of the, the leading candidate for me right now. Yeah, it's hard because the two guys that Andrew mentions here are like super producers, yeah. right? Like just like the most productive human beings on planet earth uh, in college basketball. Right. So like, like a, a name that came to mind to me is like Will Richardson at Oregon. Like I, I think Will Richardson has a chance to have a really, really big year. And do I think Will Richardson can average like 20 points a game? Yeah, I do. Like, I think that if he averaged like 24 and four or something, that wouldn't totally surprise me. Um, but like, is that, that's not 2010 and two or whatever. Right. Um, that both of those guys average, like, um, Deron Holmes at Dayton is a good name that I think could like really blow up. Um, you know, just an incredible finisher, uh, real athlete blocks the hell out of the shots like that that might be a good name maybe, maybe it is maybe the name for me would be Deron Holmes I think yeah. that's in because both of those guys are bigger guys they you know got a lot of their offense in you know shots around the basket yeah maybe Deron Holmes would be my guy yeah and I mean maybe even it ends up being like a Chris Murray at Iowa because yeah there's more opportunity there for him this year too yeah Okay, important question for you as a Celtics fan. This one from Kerry Dunn. Uh, what extension do you think Grant Williams should get? Oh, oh boy. Well, I'm never great with the money stuff. Um, whatever is enough to keep him, but not enough to overpay. Um, that's a cop-out answer, but like I know the, the cap changes, all these these different mechanisms year to year, the, the COVID uh, spikes and, and rebounds of what the numbers are really going to be for you know high end role players. 
I don't have a great pulse of right now. I will say this. I think what Grant does is less replaceable than a lot of people might think. Um, Being a bigger wing defender in the Eastern Conference when you have, you know, well, Kevin Durant right now, when you have Giannis Atenacumpo, it allows Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown to not have to guard the opposing, opposing team's best wing. And to be able to do that and, and take that assignment on while stretching the floor reliably to the corners is incredibly, incredibly important for what the Boston Celtics need. I don't think that he's a break the bank for him type of guy, but as we're looking at where the, the roster is headed and, and just how the Celtics are built the next couple of years, they're going to be a tax team and they have to be ownership has to bite that bullet if they want to win a title. So I don't think that a reasonable offer from Grant Williams that projects you into the tax is a bad thing, but I certainly wouldn't you know, go crazy on matching him for uh, an offer that might be above its head. Again, I can't speak to what those numbers exactly are, just not my area of expertise, but I do think there's a lot of value in trying to bring him back. Yeah. I think the number is like 460 to 470. Uh, Given where the salary cap is going in a few years, that's the biggest thing is that the salary cap is exploding and agents are starting to recognize that. And I would venture that this extension period that's coming up here for players is the one where we start to feel that a little bit. So so Um, this is like the Alan Crabb type of summer where everybody's getting just insane offer sheets and, and everyone's scratching their head on the first night of free agency. Like what are these numbers? I think it's the summer before that summer, but because grants contract wouldn't kick in until the next year, that means you've got basically three years. It's super cheap. If you go, you know, very high on it, uh, even if you go like with a little bit of an overpay, it's still going to age pretty well. Um, I would say, yeah, like 460. Like, I, I think I think the number is higher than what pe- the, the number is above what they gave Rob Williams, I think, even yeah. though Rob is a much better player. Um, and that's no disrespect to Grant. It's just that Rob, you know had a real case as an all defense guy and almost certainly would have been in the top five for defensive player of the year. If he didn't get hurt this year. Um, well, and, and that it, was a skill of a contract because he was hurt a lot going into the negotiations right. on that process that the cap hadn't spiked yet. You know, there were some COVID yeah. issues around, like there were a lot of benchmarks that went into why that number was so cheap. Yeah. Rob Williams had to take that contract. Yeah because of just what his health situation looked like there. There's just not really another option for him um, to set himself and his family up for the rest of their lives. He kind of had to take that deal. Um, Grant is in a bit of a different position. And I think that I think the number is a bit higher for Grant. Okay. Um, let's see here. What do we got? What do we got? Um, okay. I've got a few questions here about moving to Australia. Why did, from Matthew Crow, why'd you move to Australia again? And what's been the biggest cultural change from Jeff Brack to add on? What, should someone that is possibly looking to leave the United States consider looking into all options to move to Australia or New Zealand? 
Um, the biggest possible downside with Australia is that every poisonous giant bug and animal seems to live there. Okay. I moved to Australia because my wife is from 15 minutes down the road from where we bought our house. Um, I love it here. I would not move. Like I, I have no plans on moving back, you know, at any time soon. Right. Um, Yes, I think if you are set on leaving the United States, you should strongly consider Australia. I adore the country. Um, I, I know that the border, like it can, it can be tricky to get in here. Like it took me a little bit of time, even though I'm married to my wife to get in here, uh, even as a partner, uh, maybe with COVID, we moved in the middle of COVID. So like maybe that has changed and it's a little bit easier to get visas now. Um, work visas or, you know, I know that there are work visas that you can apply for basically um, depending on the job that you have. Yes. I would move here again. I love it. What is the biggest cultural change? I would say that people would be surprised by how little uh, different there is between here and America. Um, I, really really enjoy my time here i think people are more laid back here that's probably like a cultural shift from living in la and like living in bigger cities in the united states but i i do think that uh people would be surprised by how little of a cultural shift there is i think uh moving to a place like australia um you just have to get used to the accent and i still can't do the accent so what, what can you do? Um, I'm trying to think what do we have? Do we have anything else here? I don't know. Do you want to go to prospects of the week before we get out of here? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. I, yeah. Like so, someone asked me about like my AFL corner and my thoughts on Essendon guys. I can't do that. Like I, I can't, I can't do that right now. I'm too frustrated and annoyed. Maybe next week with spins i'll do yeah. it um but yeah right now i'm a little bit frustrated and uh annoyed with the direction of the essendon football club and uh i think the board is a fucking nightmare um it needs to figure itself out a little bit okay uh prospects of the week let's go all right spins you're up first yeah, I got one guy. Uh, I know I said I don't watch a ton of international stuff, but kind of fibbed a little bit uh, for this week. So did watch one of the overseas tours. Big fan of Trevin Brazil, sophomore at Arkansas, yep. uh, six foot nine, kind of a, a comp hybrid four and a five. Like I think he's more of a five, but can play the four a little bit. Uh, really good, good transfer addition for the Razorbacks. Averaged about two blocks a game in about 21, 22 minutes as a freshman at Missouri. Transfers to Arkansas. Razorbacks are now playing overseas uh, on this tour last week in Spain and Italy, I believe. He was really productive and efficient out there. There was one game where he pulled in only one rebound, and it was you know, against a team that didn't have anybody bigger than six foot seven. So Musselman kind of lit into him a little bit just to see how he'd respond. And he definitely responded. But over the course of the entire European tour, 15.8 points, five rebounds, 
2.3 steals. He shot 85% from the field and 93% from two-point range. Like, I get it. Take it with a grain of salt. It's a big guy on the floor going up against a lot of athletes that can't really match him. But incredibly, incredibly efficient. Great to see that he's getting a long leash with their program because I think he's going to be really impactful. Um, You know, there are a lot of big names coming into that Arkansas program. But the big question to me for how far they might go in March is how do they replace a guy like Jalen Williams? You know, he was so good for them defensively and and blanketed a lot on that end of the floor. For Brazil to to come in, he's a different type of player. You know, he's not going to take a charge every three and a half seconds. But for him to to come in and be an impactful rebounder, rim protector, high motor type of guy, while being efficient as a finisher on the other end, like when you play with guards like Anthony Black and Nick Smith who can set you up for easy shots near the basket, makes your job really easy. Buying into being that efficient, lunch pail type of guy, I think gets the Razorbacks to the next level. But Brazil's a really good good prospect because he's explosive, strong, and has a really high motor. Good to see him tap into it when we're when asked to by Coach Musselman. I think Brazil was maybe the most under discussed, really good transfer that was out there this year. Uh, he is really good. He's really athletic. He's a late bloomer. I think that's why people like at the high school recruiting level, like didn't really latch on to him until later on. Um, and I think that that's carried over in terms of just what people think of him. He's a very, very, very live athlete and he is six foot nine. He blocks shots. He has some potential to step away and shoot. Um, really good instincts defensively. Uh, obviously a great finisher. Like you go back and you watch the tape of him, Missouri last year, that team was not very good. He flashed in a big, big way. I anticipate he is there. He is their big that they're looking for. Like I know I've seen some speculation about Jalen Graham, the Mitchell twins, you know, X, Y, and Z, right? Maybe they go small. I think Trayvon Brazil is just good enough to handle it. I, I think he is their guy uh, inside this year. And he'll he'll be really, really good. And I think he's a legit NBA prospect. I think it's a great name yep. from Spins. All right. My name is Bly Madras. Uh, <laughs> Bly Madras is not a basketball player. Bly Madras is a rookie outfielder for the Pittsburgh Pirates. He's 26 years old. And... While Bly Madras was up at the plate this weekend, uh, or no, I guess it was earlier this week, Dennis Eckersley was commenting on just the absolute joke that is this Pirates roster right now. It's, It's just incredible. It's absolutely incredible what this ownership group and what this general manager group, uh, what this front office group has built on like with this roster i am a like i am a pirates fan i am a baseball fan i watch you know 30 games a year like 30 pirates games a year probably i'm I'm not gonna sit here and say like i watch them all but i watch enough to where i should know the pirates guys i track their prospects like i know it's going on for the most part i know they've done a really good job of building out the lower levels of the minor league system and that 
this hopefully is the down point of this rebuild. This roster that they have built is, and this is no disrespect to the players. This is not, this is not on you. This is the ownership. It's, it's embarrassing. It's an embarrassing product. Like I know that they're not like a disaster, disaster team, but just like, I could not tell you who most of these guys are. I have no idea. There are two catchers on the roster right now are Jason DeLay and Tyler Heineman. I have no idea who either of those two guys are. I have no idea who either of those two guys are. Last week, Rodolfo Castro got caught stealing a base with his phone in his pocket, sliding out of his like back pocket. Um, O'Neill Cruz is great. Like I, I enjoy the O'Neill Cruz experience, but like guys like Josh Van Meter, Kevin Padlow, like Bly Madras. I mean, all, all I mean this with all due respect, they are trying so hard to build their careers. <laughs> These guys like aren't start everyday starters, like in the major leagues, they just aren't. And to have a roster, it's a roster full of them. It's not like these are just the back end guys. Like, and I think they'd be happy just being the back end guys on this roster, right? Like, well, it's what is it? What is it? That Eckersley called it a hodgepodge of nothingness. A hodgepodge of nothingness. Is that not like sell the team, Bob Nutting? Sell the team. You aren't putting a product on the field that is even remotely, remotely interesting, let alone competitive. I get that the you've invested money in the minor leagues. I get that Ben Charrington has invested resources and assets into the minor leagues. I get that. And I'm excited for what the future could bring. But if you're not going to spend money this summer, when you this this roster right now, I think it's like under forty million dollars in terms of like what the salary is. If you can't spend money this summer after you just carried a roster of thirty eight million dollars, whatever the fuck the money is right now for this full season, sell the team, like sell it to someone that wants to invest in it. It has. An incredible fan base. Go back and watch those games where they made the playoffs in the early 2010s. That fan base loves it. That fan base goes absolutely crazy when there's a winning baseball team in town. Pittsburgh fans want nothing more than to go to PNC Park, which is one of the coolest stadiums in professional sports, period, point blank, that you can attend. They want nothing more than to go to that stadium and have a good time. They want nothing more than to go see a winner. If you're not going to invest in that, sell the fucking team. Are you kidding me? It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Like, and look, seriously, I mean zero disrespect to any of these guys, like any of these players on the team. They're trying to make a living. They're reaching their dream in the major leagues. It's just that there's a full roster of them right now. It's a full roster of quad A players, except for like Brian Reynolds and Brian Hayes. But like 
Cabrian Hayes is obviously hurt right now. Like, I just sell the team for the love of God. Just sell the team, please. I I just got, I got nothing. I got nothing beyond that. Um, Spins, you got to deal with a rant from me in the first full episode. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Tell the people where they can find you. Tell the people where they can find your work, your sub stack, uh, your YouTube channel, everything uh, that you need to know. Sure. Always a pleasure being with you here, Sam. Uh, find me on Twitter at the box and one underscore or on YouTube. Just my name, Adam Spinella. Uh, our sub stack has a lot of stuff coming out over the summer, more written reports and, and detailed than what you might find on the, the YouTube. Uh, it's the box and one dot You know, Twitter's the best place to find me and follow me uh, trying to get out a bunch of, of previews and, and smaller things ahead of the season here. And Sam, I actually did my homework. I went and saw a movie over the last week or so. Oh God! I went What'd and saw you see? bodies, bodies, bodies. I did go oh, out and, and catch bodies. That's amazing. Body, I haven't seen it. Is it good? It's. Uh, I can recognize that it's not my type of movie. Well, mm. uh, so I, I went and saw it with my college roommate, and he is a, a big film guy. Watches a ton yeah. of different, you know stuff, and he loves to have analysis conversations afterwards. And he saw a lot of value in different areas and was wanting to break down, you know, I love this scene and how it foreshadows X, Y, or Z. I'm more of a plot driven guy at times. Um, I think that it tried to hit on a few too many hot button issues or topics without diving too deep into Mm. any. So it's, it's hard to take away a ton of messages or themes. Um, But like, it's, it's a fun movie. I can give it some credit there. It's a fun movie. Yeah. My speaking of horror movies, my wife and I watch resurrection, which is this wild goddamn ride with Rebecca Hall. Um, it's a horror movie where she is uh, a single mother who is then so, someone comes back into her life and um, she, it's like a psychological thriller and all that stuff. She's unbelievable. I think she's becoming one of the absolute best actresses in Hollywood, point blank, period. Uh, everyone should cast Rebecca Hall in like very important projects or keep casting her in these great horror movies like this in the night house, because my wife and I will watch all of them and love them. Um, this one was good. I enjoyed it. It was an absolutely wild last 15 minutes. And I think it does a great job of kind of um, blurring the mix of reality and uh, just what could be happening um, in your head versus what's actually happening, you know, on the screen. Um, I actually randomly did it as a double feature with in the mouth of madness, which is the John Carpenter movie from 1994, which has gotten like a reappraisal recently. It's like this weird, like fiction versus reality blurring movie where um, Sam Neill's like going to try and find this author in this town that may or may not exist. Again, another movie that I think people should watch. Uh, it was an interesting double feature that I randomly did. I liked both of the movies. I think I liked the resurrection just a little bit more. Cause I thought that Rebecca Hall was just absolutely staggering, but um, I, w- I would suggest both. 
honestly. I'll have to look into and then that. I'm, Speaking of plot, like while I was sick, I watched the Mission Impossible movies again. Like just just watch the Mission Impossible movies. <laughs> they're so always, good. Yeah, they're always fun. <laughs> they're so good. Okay, Adam. That's been Adam Spinella over there. We'll be back with another Game Theory podcast in a couple of days. Um, I need to figure out what the next couple of days is going to look like for me in terms of scheduling podcasts. But uh, I have a general idea that maybe not the rest of this week. There won't be two more episodes starting next week. I think there might be. uh, We might start going to three episode weeks again. Just because, honestly, I want to catch up um, a decent amount in terms of speaking and get ready for the season again. I feel like I'm out of practice. I haven't um, haven't gone three weeks, basically, without podcasting in months. Or not months, uh, years. I'm sorry. So I, I want to get back into the swing of things a little bit. And there are a few things I want to do. I have a few fun ideas that maybe we can bring some fun guests from the athletic on the NBA side to the table uh, to have some fun with. But until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.